Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's the, uh, the first VR Hermits of the year. We're back after a nearly three-week break, so yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to talk about VR stuff again. You all rested up? Mm, I don't know. I, not really. It wasn't. It wasn't really a restful time for me. It was actually kind of a busy time of year for me, um, for my consulting business, for my non-VR work. I work with a lot of education customers, and this was a good time of year to take some servers down and do some updates and do some data migrations. And there was a laundry list of improvements to do on a couple of those systems. So yeah, it was a busy couple of weeks. So I think I got more rest this past week after the holidays and I did during the holidays. Yeah, the holidays were not exceptionally restful. Shortly thereafter, I ended up being sick, which gave me about a week of downtime, which ended up being, I wasn't badly sick. I was just obnoxiously sick. Yeah. Annoying. Yeah. It was, it was I was ill and I was too ill to go anywhere or do anything. And I hate being the guy who's just going to get everybody else sick. So I spent an entire week not leaving my house, basically at all. Hmm. Um, but it was well mitigated by drugs. So I just ended up kind of hanging out in my house and having really short cycles of programming. Nice. Like I was only conscious for six to eight hours at a stretch, but four or five of those could be programming. <laughs> so it was an exceptionally productive time being ill. Nice. I usually, I don't get sick very often. When I do, it's it's usually a very short term because I, I immediately take work off and then I just have a laundry list of foods and drinks that I go through. I don't know if it's in my head or it's just something that I've made up for myself or it's actually effective, but basically I consume so much food in a 24-hour period that... It's like it basically shocks my system into I don't have time to be sick. I'm trying to deal with all this food. So it seems to work. It's probably not recommended, but I've been doing it for about 10 years. <laughs> and I've not had a cold for more than, say, two or three days since then. So, But I do have a guaranteed cure to the common cold. I mean, you'll get over it within 7 to 14 days. So just, you know, send me $20,000 of uh, maybe Bitcoin. That's fine. And I'll share, I'll share that with you. Yeah. Anyway. Seven or 14 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jerk. Took you a minute. So what have you been working on? Uh, I've been working on my game prototype. Yeah. It's actually been long enough. What all did we discuss previously about that? I think you had some jumping and you were just starting to get the... You were starting to work on the terrain kind of hopping around. But I think the last time we recorded, I'm not sure if you actually had that working yet or if we were just starting to talk about it. Okay. It was very, very rough at that time. Mm -hmm. So... I I proceeded from there to make quite a bit of progress and also quite a few mistakes. 
lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Um, I'd like to say that I made all the mistakes that are possible, but it's far too early for that. I'm sure there are many more mistakes to come. Um, so yeah, at this point, I've got uh, multiple players uh, controllable from... Right now, it's just keyboard stuff, so each player gets their own key on the keyboard for their one-button-press-jump function. Um, a bunch of clowns chasing after you, and the clowns automatically jump over terrain issues, and um, players have to kind of dodge clowns, or at least keep running really fast so the clowns don't get them, and when players get hit by clowns they get turned into clowns and can start chasing the other players and it all like i've got the complete most basic form of the game loop Mm -hmm. it's like you can the game starts everybody plays eventually somebody wins the game is over when that person dies and um and then you can start a new game and and I I don't know I think it's kind of, it's kind of fun yeah so I, yeah. I I guess to clarify the game is over when so there's always one person still alive but the game isn't over until they die so technically everybody loses that is certainly one way of looking at it um <clears throat> it's an and it's a classic endless runner but I've designed it in such a way that you can play multiple players in an endless runner simultaneously. So being the last guy alive doesn't mean the game's over. Mm. It just means that there's one more person to die. And there you go. Yeah. Um, I showed it off yesterday at the uh, January COG meeting, the Central Ohio Game Dev Group. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of fun grabbing four people out of the audience and showing them buttons on the keyboard and saying, go. And they picked it up really quickly and got competitive really quickly. Yeah. And the audience seemed to enjoy watching it. I was noticing some people kind of leaning forward and kind of seeing what was going on. Everybody gets a big chuckle out of my sound effects. Um, because for a prototype game, my sound effects are almost always either me making the noise or me saying a word of the noise. Which is So as characters are running along, when they reach an obstacle and they want to jump over it and they hit their little jump button, it just says boing. And they bounce over the thing. Um So that's yeah. just kind of fun. It, and it's easy to make the, like, I, I at prototype, I'm looking for the no barriers. You know, my characters have no real animation. Everybody's just running. Yeah. I mean, the sound effect thing was particularly funny because there's, you know, four players making boing sounds or four clowns making boing sounds and players making sounds. And it was pretty absurd, like, immediately. <laughs> as, soon, as soon as you hit play, it was just like, chaos sound everybody just started laughing so <laughs> um but in general that is suggestive that there's something there mm-hmm. 
which was the entire intent of the prototype. Like, make a thing so that somebody can actually play at least a simplified version of the game and find out whether they find it enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And it's not a hard game, and I don't know that um, anybody's going to start a league (laughs) for competitively playing my game, but I think it could be a perfectly enjoyable way for a bunch of suitably motivated human beings to enjoy themselves at themselves at some kind of gathering mm-hmm. yeah it's a good it's a good gathering game it's a good party game i also thought it would be a, a good substitute for decision making group decisions like where are we going <laughs> to use it in place of rock paper scissors things like that or flipping a coin or whatever like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah, especially if you, if you can have a version on your phone and like, you know, four or five little buttons crammed together in a corner and everybody's jamming on a $1,000 phone trying not to drop it. Yeah, we probably want to set that down. <laughs> Unless we go with one of our other ideas, which was since most of these controllers are motion sensitive, mm-hmm. you could make one of the players on the controller do the jump by actually moving the controller. Yeah. And when we came up with that idea during brunch yesterday, we both giggled for yeah. a good 60 seconds. Yeah. It was just the, the painful absurdity of the whole thing was awesome. Yeah, so I guess so, I guess one of the game mechanics for this game is the fact that input is not hard. It's just slightly inconvenient. So all the players are sharing a single keyboard or a game controller or a touchscreen, whatever they end up being on but no it's not like people sitting around with four ps4 controllers playing independently they're all sharing the same four buttons right next to each other and yes so yeah, i could definitely see your game while it's not going to be coming an esports legend anytime soon you could have some pretty funny um some pretty funny examples of people playing your clown game while doing x <laughs> like, while sword fighting or you know, having a, a nerf tournament or playing the piano I'll take it sounds good Um, yeah so we had a bunch of weird little ideas that popped out of that and showing it to people and and you know, it was it was at a point where somebody could play it and then have reasonable feedback. Mm-hmm. They could they could get what I was trying to accomplish and come up with suggestions other than wow, you should really fix that one graphic glitch or something like that. Yeah, like they they could see where it was going. Um. So yeah, that's all great. There was also one of the other Cog members uh, who's also a listener. Jason. Hello, Jason. Um, sat down with me for a while and we took a look through some of the code. And I got a lot of guidance on the kinds of things that I should be concerned about when I'm building something in Unity. Um, like what? Because I was both concerned about things that I shouldn't be concerned about and not concerned about things that I should have been concerned about. <laughs> Um, so that was immensely helpful. Can you give some examples? Um, 
one of the things that I've struggled with quite a bit is um, I've got that there's there's this structure of uh, game objects in the organizer. And then a bunch of those have scripts attached to them. And then these things need to communicate in various capacities. Little pieces of information, things like that. And so one of the ways that you can make those connections is to make a public game object or transform property and connect to game objects directly. Mm -hmm. That said, I could make a private game object property and then serialize it or i could query the structure of the overall uh uh, scene and decompose it into its smaller bits and kind of automatically assign these things entirely in the background and I, i was kind of looking for like a well you should do this and you shouldn't do this and the answer seems to be no, they're all kind of appropriate in whatever context. Mm-hmm. Like there are better and worse ways, but it's all much fuzzier, allowing for me to exert more judgment. Uh, probably a better example of the conversation is my first game engine was Cocos 2D on the iPhone 3G. So way, way, way back in the beginning. And, or or not necessarily in the beginning, but very early in iOS gaming. And it was all in Objective-C. And that particular environment for that particular platform, there was a definite performance advantage in not calling additional methods from your update method. So you've got a method that's being called once every frame. And you can adjust things. But if you started calling like 15 different sub-methods within that, Mm -hmm. that would cause a noticeable performance impact. And it was primarily due to the message passing overhead that's built into Objective-C when you're trying to run in that tight of a loop. It's not necessarily going to be a problem in any other game environment or in any other language. Like Swift doesn't do the same message passing. So if I was writing uh, SpriteKit in Swift, I wouldn't necessarily have the same problem. Mm -hmm. So, But Cocos 2D in Objective-C definitely wanted a large monolithic update method. Just one huge thing that did all of your your changes. Oh, fun. Uh, Yeah, well, there was just... You didn't have to, but there was definitely a performance advantage, a noticeable performance advantage to doing it. And then I would look at, um, you know, the stuff that we got from the Wenderlich book. And a lot of that likes large... Like, attaching a single script to a player... And everything is covered in there, and there's a big update function mm-hmm. in there that does a lot of stuff. It doesn't really call a lot of sub-functions. It's like they were they just handled most of it right there in the update. And my brain started going, oh, okay, I know how this works, and just started applying the old 
organization logic to the new system. Yeah. Well, and I think that touches on something we we talked about a couple weeks or a couple months ago was that that Ray Wenderlich book in particular is is a unity intro for beginners. It doesn't make a claim to teach you design patterns. And I think they they do a pretty good job of avoiding those more complex topics in that book because they just want you to learn how to make game objects and components and get stuff running without getting bogged down to the actual code design patterns and how you should structure things. And this is Unity is kind of a lot like FileMaker in this regard in that there are five ways to do everything and sometimes they can all be equally viable. Sometimes maybe there is a, a, a clear winner, but it does seem like there's a lot of ways to do simple things. It was just you were, how you were describing how many different ways there are to patch data from one object to another. Yeah. And so I was describing this logic path in my brain to Jason, and he looked at me like I was crazy. Um, and I found that I think part of my difficulty is that you know, starting with Cocos 2D and then moving into Sprite Kit and then spending a little bit of time looking at Unreal Engine and then migrating at this point, I think probably for at least the foreseeable future, to Unity, there are significant similarities about between those systems and the way they look at certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got kind of a render tree of nodes that's that knows what the visual impact of something is and it's all wrapped up in a transform and these things chain in this way and this is how they get drawn and this is how call chains work and all of this stuff seems very similar between the different environments and what it was doing was causing me to start trying to carry over some of the same lessons Hmm. and the design logic is not necessarily the same because these aren't the same engine behind the scenes like sprite kit seems very 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 heavily influenced by cocos 2d yeah and the sprite kit physics engine uh, under the hood at least initially was box 2d which Hmm. is kind of the cocos 2d physics engine um one of the things we did in one of the classes that i took was decompiled sprite kit physics engine and looked at the function calls and they were box 2d function calls underneath the hood um, and so that had me thinking like, oh, these things are all kind of related and I'm sure it's very incestuous behind the scenes. And the answer is no. <laughs> you know, the, there are things that are common between these things because there are elements that make sense when you're designing a game engine. And that does not mean that they have either shared design constraints or um, shared design logic. Mm-hmm. You know, and so just trying to set aside the assumptions that were in my head that had been programmed from so many years ago that I didn't even realize they were still there. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's also important to remember that a lot of these ways of, like when you make a, a public variable and add it to the inspector on a component, that exists because not everybody is a solo person like you and I working on a project by ourselves. 
those features exist because there are teams of developers who write code and other people who do level design who don't want to go into code. So that's a way for the code monkeys to expose certain properties to the level designers so they can still make progress without having to request every single thing be added. Um, I think it's just important to keep that in mind. Like we're using tools made for much bigger teams and made for collaborative workflows. And it's really easy, especially even more so in Unreal Engine, but it's easy in Unity to, to get intimidated by those tools and realize like, just use the easiest thing. Whatever is easiest for me to wrap my head around is probably the right answer, at least to get it running. And then if I run into performance issues later, then I'll take a look at it. But I'm definitely at the point now where I just want to get something working. So I really don't care about design patterns at this point. If you, you saw some of the code <laughs> that I have, it, it's sloppy. I'm just throwing components on there. And I've got one class that's kind of does some coordination between them. But for the most part, it's just like, will it run? Okay, it's running, move on. You know, I'll revisit this later as I need to. But Yeah, it, there's also the fact that there are things that I learned about game design when I had like a 400 megahertz processor <laughs> that are just not an issue right now. A, because I'm not really trying to make mobile games mm -hmm. at this stage. Like my eventual intention is to make uh vr games with lots and lots of processor cycles to play with yeah like, um the weird stuff that i had to do back then to shave a couple of cycles off of a process may not even be an issue anymore and so it's just kind of a it's only been since yesterday but just kind of planting a little thing in my head that goes wait don't do that mm -hmm. um don't don't make that same assumption and honestly until you just said it I'd somehow forgotten about the team development aspects of Unity. Mm -hmm. That, yes, I totally can decompose the entire scene in code and make all of these assignments at runtime. Yeah. I, I totally can. I don't have to use that inspector for any of that stuff. Yeah, you really don't. So it's not... It really is about what's easiest for me. Yeah, I mean, Xcode and SpriteKit have similar, not quite as good implementation, but they've got uh, like an IB inspectable attribute where you can expose stuff in the inspector in a similar way. It's not as sophisticated as Unity's, mm -hmm. but when I was building Random Arrow, I didn't use any of their visual WYSIWYG tools at all. I did every bit of that in code just because it was easier for me as I was learning Swift. This is where I was spending all of my focus. And the tools that were available in SpriteKit just seemed kind of kludgy and confusing, but writing code was fairly simple. So, you know, obviously that game is not exactly, you know, an excellent game to hold up as a standard, but you get the idea. It was what was easiest for me to learn a new system. But I'm, on the other hand, in Unity, I'm definitely using the inspector because I, I think it's, I really like the whole entity component system and it just really clicks with how I think about things in general. Mm -hmm. Like there's been a couple of times this week where I've applied my coat component when I'm going outside 
<laughs> Just enable this. Isn't that kind of a subordinate coat object? Don't get me started. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the, a lot of fun ideas came out of that. Mm -hmm. um, you were advocating for a fun multiplayer um, VR version with one player no, that wasn't, in VR. That, nope. that wasn't my idea. That was a good idea, but it wasn't my idea. No? I forget who said it? that. I don't remember. I could have sworn it was you. No. Maybe you just passed it along. Um, but yeah, other, other ways of doing kind of, or, or dealing with the problem that right now I have one VR headset, but I really like multiplayer games. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I did have a little fun because the, the last one that I'm, or, or the, the last modification that I was making to the code was that morning on my laptop. Not on my desktop, which is my primary development machine. And it was the first time on any Unity project where I had created a branch on a remote machine that I then needed to merge back in as part of the official code. And that went very badly, <laughs> at least initially. Um, I... I just that, that same thing where every time I go to version control, I get the two things that I modified and 15 other things that changed. Mm -hmm. Like, now that I'm using a, a .gitignore file, it's uh, less than the 80 things that used to be modified. Yeah. But there's still 15 things that are getting checked in on every single check-in. Um. And so those things started having a lot of merge conflicts. <clears throat> and I, for my particular situation, it was easy enough for me to just say, okay, whenever you have a merge conflict, just use whatever was on the remote one. Because mm -hmm. that'll be the latest and greatest, and that's what we'll merge in. And then finally Unity would load and display my scene, which it wasn't doing for a while. Yeah. Um, was, it just, I, was it just all the metadata files? I'm not sure. Just all the files that ended dot meta. Um, well, I can look and no, a bunch of them are Unity shader compiler dot log files, and my user prefs somehow got tweaked. Uh, editor instance dot json. Hmm. Uh, which may very well just have been based upon the fact that the the Unity installs are two completely separate installs that happened that followed like different update paths or whatever yeah. on two separate machines, or even just the fact that they've got two different sized windows. Like when I merged this all back in and launched Unity, the window opened, but it was the size of my laptop, and I had to blow it back up. That may have been just where part of the difficulty was coming in. Um. So yeah, I mean, I'm not planning on doing most of my Unity development on my laptop. Um, but it was just some weird stuff, and I I don't know, I don't know what you do if you are working on a Unity project in a large team. Yeah, 
I would be fascinated to see somebody explain what version control looks like in a Unity team of five developers. Yeah, I mean, obviously they've got they've got support for GitHub or for Git. They've got support for Subversion, but they also have their own proprietary thing called Unity for Teams that they're pushing pretty hard, and it probably solves a lot of these issues or at least masks them from developers since they control the stack there. Yeah. That's something I get an email about every month that I should check it out. Like, yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, now the, the big problem is figuring out what's next. Mm-hmm. Do I set this aside and make another prototype of a, of either this game or a completely different game? Like, try a different approach. Make it 3D and isometric so it has a different angle to it and and see if I can make things more exciting for the players in that way. Or do I um, say, well, that was interesting and it was a good learning experience, but let's move on to a different game. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really need to finish this thing. There's no pressing need for that. Or do I say... No, let's go ahead and f- make this. Like, I really want to stick with the concept of throw out the prototype, yeah. start from a blank project and build it the way it needs to be done because there are a lot of mistakes that I would like to repair by just starting over. Yeah. Um, but go ahead and make this thing. You know, build it so that I can target a console or something like that. And... A, a actual game controller or maybe even multiple game controllers and let's run this thing through the end. See if we can build a real thing. And I don't honestly know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you um, have a vote, Joe? Um, the VR developer in me says, it was a great learning experience. You should uh, do some VR stuff now. <laughs> I was very tempted after getting a chance to look at your project yesterday. Yeah. Um, and maybe you'll be more tempted after I tell you what I've learned about Steam VR and Open VR. Okay. Yeah. But back to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the VR developer in you says you should go ahead and make a VR game. Uh, what is, is there another part of you that says something different? I do think it's a very fun idea. And I think it's one of those things you could just keep spinning off versions of it for different <laughs> devices. And I just as you were talking a minute ago, I had an idea. So yesterday you demoed it with four people pushing four keys on the keyboard. But since we're a VR podcast and we want to be VR developers, you could make a 2D version of this that runs in VR on a 2D screen where four avatars are huddled around four buttons in like a shared space. So you could take this with you someday. And just keep, you know, just, this game just keeps popping up. Just like I may, you know, you may find a portable handheld in one of my games someday that has a copy of Random Arrow running. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. There's even like, there's a couple uh, social apps, social VR apps where you can basically develop plugins or develop rooms with your own experiences. So you could, you know, throw this in one of those. It may actually be a good way to test it out too. Yeah, I think what I'll end up doing, and this is just 
the answer as of this minute mm-hmm. is I think what I'll probably do is put this one to bed for a little while. I do agree. I, I like the idea. It was a fun thing. I'd like to finish it. Um, I would like to go further with it and do all sorts of fun stuff. But I would like to dig into more of the VR aspects. So I think what I'll maybe do is play around with some VR prototype ideas next and let this one percolate for a while longer. And then I'll come back to it later, hopefully, or maybe it'll just be this thing that's kind of in my portfolio that I can pull out and show people when I need to be able to explain to somebody who doesn't have a VR headset what I do. I mean, I always keep side projects around the just mm-hmm. various things I'm tinkering on. So you could leave it, you know, kind of deactivate it as your active project, but leave it as a side project and something to tinker on when you're stuck on something else or you just don't want to work on it, um, mm-hmm. but still want to make progress in Unity or in game dev in general. It's always good to have those projects. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've currently got plans at the end of the month in my day job stuff to uh, release a product that I started nine months ago and has gotten backburnered a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's just finally gotten polished to the point that we're going to go ahead and release it. Yeah. So. Yeah. You should yeah. Uh, dive into some VR stuff so you can uh, get really good at it and start helping me with some stuff. <laughs> and there's our segue. Joe, how's your project going? Uh, pretty good. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I spent most of our break working on FileMaker stuff and a little bit of web development and a lot of server stuff. But uh, the last four days of last week, I was finally able to devote some time to my project. And I guess part prototype, part just more of a sandbox phase at this point. Um, I'm basically just, I've got a project where I'm able to create some game mechanics and just test stuff out and see what's fun and learn about the Steam VR APIs and just trying to figure out best practices and how to future-proof this thing as much as possible and also learn from it at the same time. So I don't have a prototype working. I do have a scene that you can visit, and you saw it yesterday. Um, it's just a big empty room with a, a couple of laser turrets that will do some kind of smart sensing, but not too smart at this point. I'm using uh, an asset pack called Sensor Toolkit that I got in the Unity Asset Store that has, it's a pretty sophisticated pack and it has a lot of features. I'm using basically just one right now, which is a, <laughs> a field of view sensor attached to basically a very simple turret so the turret is little more than a sphere with a line render just using a particle system material to render a laser effect and the the line render is just stuck to the forward vector and the sphere rotates based on a tracking system class that i wrote or i should say more of it adapted from about five different stack overflow questions and then uh yeah, just I'm definitely at that phase of just like not really knowing the right things to do. So just 
you were you were talking at the beginning of how many mistakes you've made and I've done the similar thing, but I don't call them mistakes at this point. I'm calling them nopes because I basically it's I have an idea. Will this work? Nope. Next idea. <laughs> so it's it's not like I'm I'm making mistakes. A mistake is when I delete a filemaker field that I didn't think was needed and that messed something up. That's a mistake. But uh, well, I, I, one of my favorite things to reference that makes everybody cringe is right now my player sprites have a 3d sphere collider attached to them Mm -hmm. that was not intentional (laughs) that was just kind of the way it happened and yeah uh, that was that was a mistake even if i recreated the game so that it looked exactly the way that it does now i wouldn't do that at all again yeah that is a mistake yeah i'll give you that one (laughs) so you know at this point i basically have some tools in place um to make stuff particularly some level design tools that we'll talk about in a minute but um you know i've got a a laser turret it rotates and currently the sensors i'm using will I can limit the field of view to a certain angle, and then I also have it um, only detect things that it can actually see. So if something's in the field of view but on the other side of the wall, it can't detect it. But I can have multiple turret types that things that could detect stuff like that and maybe blast through walls and things like that. Um, I think I wrote out about 10 different types of turrets that I can make with just the ideas that I have so far. But right now I'm just working on one. And the sensors pass a, they get a list of game objects that are being sensed. And I, they had, the sensor class has a method to get the nearest one, which is what I'm using right now. Um, there's lots of other ways to do that as well. One of the cool things that I'm considering, it may be overkill, but giving all of the targets like a level of interest to the turrets. So say, you know, baseline objects have a level of interest of 100, and some objects have a level of interest of 150. And the even if a 100 object is right up next to the laser, the 150 object is 10 meters away. The laser will go for that one because it's far more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that could be beneficial to working with the puzzles. Playing with it yesterday, it was kind of fun to have the turret try and aim at me and I just picked up a small block and held it in front of me and it was like ooh block mm-hmm. yeah ooh I want that <laughs> which simultaneously is is an interesting mechanic like I will kill whatever is closest mm-hmm. yeah exactly That's yeah so I mean one of the most simple mechanics is distracting the laser with an object like that so I just have some cubes in there right now but this could be any asset um, at one point I had some low poly fish and I was just throwing fish around the scene and watching the lasers happen. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easily amused. <laughs> and, uh, so, so yeah, like it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, I've been working with something called pro builder, which was, it is a, it's one of six applications or asset bundles, plugins, whatever you want to call them that run inside Unity. I got the Procore pack 
It was a bit pricey. I think it was 150 bucks, but it basically gives me 3D modeling in Unity, um, at least in terms of making level geometry and things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to make a, a very sophisticated, you know, human character and animate it and rig it for, you know, a shooter or anything like that. But I can make walls and ceilings and floors and things to hide behind and obstacles and interactable objects, things like that. Um, and it's got a lot of the, it's basically just got a lot of the common 3D modeling things, but it really speaks in the language of Unity in terms of how these the inspectors work. And it just, it's very thoughtfully designed. It's It's been in development for four years. They're constantly issuing updates to it. I think it's just two people that make this thing, which blows my mind. Um, <laughs> they've got a really good educational channel on YouTube and just a bunch of really good documentation. So I have learned, I think, more about 3D modeling from this and from the Unreal Engine um, geometry objects than I have from either Blender or Maya stuff, which is kind of weird. Like maybe that's just how I think. Like those tools are a bit too confusing for me, but when somebody can show me this, the exact same end result, but in Unity with this tool, it makes way more sense to me. Um, particularly when he, I watched a video on how to UV unwrap a pro builder object and then start texturing that UV. And they, they've got a side to side editor where you can have the UVs spread out in a 2D plane on one side. They've got some auto stitching features and things like that. But you can also switch to a mode where you're clicking on faces of the 3D object in the actual scene editor and just moving textures around there. And that really made it click for me of how UVs actually work or should work. Um, so I, I should probably send them a nice note because that's something I've been struggling on <laughs> for like five months and their 20 minute YouTube video finally explained it to me. So yeah, uh, basic turrets, basic lasers. Um, and then the rest of it's just been working with Steam VR. We talked about the VR Toolkit a while back. Um, VR Toolkit is a really awesome thing that I hope has some kind of future, but the developer has basically not stopped working on it. I think he's still doing some bug fixes, things like that, but he's basically winding down his involvement in it. And I watched a YouTube stream or at least a recording of a YouTube stream where he talked about why he was kind of stepping away from this project. And I guess his intention when he started this was to develop a community of people that could together develop a common set of standards and tools that developers could use to get started on VR development across many platforms like Oculus and Vive and Daydream and Gear VR, things like that, and just have a common set, a common way of doing that. And he he solved the technical aspect, but no one else really got involved, or at least not enough people to actually make it not overwhelming for him. So it became a you know pretty big chunk of his time. And at one point he tried to do some crowdfunding, he tried some uh, Patreon stuff like that, and just wasn't making enough to actually make it a go of it as a job. So it was just he was kind of saddled with a very big complex hobby that a lot of other people are relying on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's a not a good situation. Um, so if any of our dear listeners have tons and tons of money, you should go give it to that guy, and uh, maybe he can make it into a thing. But failing that, I don't think. Unless you know, it's all open source. So if other developers start diving into it and contributing to it, then it may have a future. But as it stands now, it was. It's. I thought about using it for this project anyway, just thinking. You know, it's good enough now. I may be able to fix bugs myself later on. But every time I added it to the project, an hour later, I was there was something in the back of my mind like, no, get get rid of this. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of basing my project off of brand new stuff or deprecated stuff. Exactly. So, so I've dived into Steam VR directly and without a lot of understanding about what that means. <laughs> um, so where do I even start with this? So if you go to, if you find Unity's documentation on how to get started in Steam VR, you basically find the OpenVR page in their documentation that has about two sentences of Unity supports OpenVR, and that's about it. It supports rendering. Here's a link to the input page and how to get input events from the controllers. And then uh, if you need any more, see the asset pack in the asset store. And apparently I skimmed over that too quickly the first time. And I assumed that the asset pack in the asset store was the entirety of SteamVR. Um, and I guess that's how it was working up until earlier last year. It, for most of SteamVR's history on Unity, you had to have that asset pack to do any kind of VR rendering and the, basically the entire pipeline. Um, in 2017.1, they added OpenVR support for rendering VR cameras and controller support, things like that. But it's basically just, they didn't give you any features with that. They just gave you the support for it. So now you can start with a blank slate. If you want to do teleporting, write your teleporting stuff. If you want to have controllers, write your controller classes, things like that. So I had started with the Steam VR asset pack and that's what I'm still using and intend to use but I had assumed that was the be-all, end-all, but it's, it is kind of a an optional set of tools, um, at least at this point. And I think part of my confusion when I first started with this, I started with VRTK, and the first step with VRTK was to install the Steam VR asset pack. <laughs> so. um, but you know, I was looking through the README in the SteamVR stuff today and found two paragraphs that were rather interesting. So the openvr underscore api.cs file, this direct wrapper for the native SteamVR SDK supports mirrors SteamVR.h and is the only script required. It exposes all functionality by SteamVR. It is not recommended you make any changes to this file. It should be kept in sync with the associated openvr API, DLL, blah, blah, blah. And then this is the interesting part. The remaining files found in assets, DMVR scripts are provided as reference implementations and to get you up and running quickly. You are encouraged to modify these to suit your project's needs and provide feedback. And they give you a couple links. So yeah, I just completely missed that second paragraph. 
Um, <laughs> all of these things, like all of the teleporting, the interaction stuff, the interactables and throwables and all that stuff. It's just, here's how we did it in the lab. You're welcome to use this stuff, but you don't have to. Mm. So, yeah, that's completely different from all of our concerns. Yeah, so I had assumed that I was not... I was I was thinking because and not without reason, quite frankly, because in Unreal Engine, if you start a new project, a new VR project, they give you a whole new scene with a bunch of stuff built for Steam VR. Is there are Steam VR classes built into Unreal Engine, and they're not in Unity. There's some Open VR, some really basic Open VR stuff, but there's no no assumption of how you're going to do things or what features you, you're going to want. And I think you can see that with Unity as a whole, um, they don't give you stuff like that. They they have assets for that. They have prefabs for that. They have a whole store for that. I think that's one of the biggest differences between the two platforms, just a different approach of how they add features to it, which keeps Unity pretty clean. But uh, I had been operating under the assumption that that SteamVR pack was something I had to keep kind of off to the side of the project and be able to update it whenever there's an update from Steam or from Valve. But it basically means um, I should just take this code and use it as I see fit. And if that means just pull it out of my project and just you know recreate the things that I want. So I want some teleporting, but I don't need teleporting anywhere near as sophisticated as what they have in the lab or as loud <laughs> as they have in the lab. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't need a lot of the GUI stuff. So they're doing a lot of 2D overlay stuff and how to interact with menus and things like that. And I really don't want to do any of that stuff. I'd rather have, if I have a menu in my app, I want it to be a scene that you walk around in and pick stuff up to do things. I don't want to be laser pointing at a 2D image. I think that's kind of annoying. Uh, I think a good example would be um, fantastic contraption. Their their main menu scene is basically a room you stand in and do different things. And like, if you want to throw away a level or throw away a save file, you pick it up and throw it in a volcano. <laughs> that's that's their delete button. So I'd rather make stuff like that than just laser pointing onto a two D screen. So there's right. like, so I can basically. I can leave the Steam VR stuff in my project and just modify it, or I can reference it to make my own classes um, and just kind of go from there. I think what I'll probably do is leave it in the project, modify it as I see fit, and if there's a substantive update in the future, just do a diff between the two and see what I need to change or if any of those changes affect anything that I'm doing. And then towards the end of the project, just get rid of all the Steam VR stuff that I'm not actually using because I'm mainly using some of the camera stuff, the interactable stuff, and the teleport stuff. And that's pretty much it. There's a lot of other stuff that I'm not even touching. Although I probably will use the level loading thing because that's pretty cool. So yeah, that's where I'm at. It's very confusing, um, but also really fun. Like It's just been a whole week of like a pretty creative period of just trying to figure stuff out and I've got a, a working punch list. I'm managing this project much differently than I do with most projects. I didn't I didn't start with a long discovery phase 
of documentation and writing out features and requirements. I basically just started out with a very short punch list of here are the things I want to have and just start making little punch lists of how to do each one and just update that as I go and keep adding things and removing things. Um, so at this point, there are no real requirements and the game, it's entirely possible that it becomes a 100% different game than the thing that I thought of a month ago. And I'm not even opposed to that. I'm just learning from it pretty quickly. So that's where I'm at with it. It's There's a lot to learn and I've got a, a ton of plans for it. Um, I just need to make time to actually work on it. There was one very, very strange bug that I found Thursday night or Friday night and uh, just was not going to go to bed until I fixed it. It was just one of those like really annoying things that like I have to fix this and I know I can find it. I just need to f- figure out what is happening. So I'll describe as best I can what was happening, but I had a one of my little turret objects sitting on a pedestal essentially and it was rotating around and targeting objects and when when the player teleports over next to it it would target the object just fine and if i was what i can only describe as to the right of the sphere (laughs) (laughs) to the right of the sphere yes okay gotcha to to the right you know from the world space from where i was standing in my room looking at my desk to the right of my desk looking at the sphere in front of me i would see this really weird 2d decal looking thing and it would basically show me like not isometric not the right word but like it would show almost an unwrapped version of like two or three faces of the sphere and i could see part of a laser and it was just really weird the further away i got from it the smaller it was the closer i got to it the bigger it was it was always in the same distance from me um okay but it was as i got away from it it would get smaller so it was just this really weird visual artifact and at first I just ignored it, assuming something was wrong with my headset. And then it kept happening, but only at a certain orientation, again, off to the right of this one turret. So I, I assumed it was something, like I had done so many things to this prefab that I was working on that I decided I'll, I'll just rebuild this from the ground up. So I'll make a new sphere and I'll make a new game object and mm-hmm. you know, just rebuild the entire turret system one component at a time. And did that, took a couple minutes, got it up and running, tested it, same thing. I'm like, okay, it's got to be the material. I'm using some really weird shader here. I'll switch it back to the standard shader. Nope, same thing. Okay, it's maybe it's ProBuilder. ProBuilder's got a weird thing. I need to export this out as a mesh. I'll just use a regular Unity Sphere. Nope, still happening. So then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So then I... I've, I've got... Oh, I hope my guess isn't correct. Go ahead. You got a guess? Go for it. I I do, but, but I'm wondering if what it ended up being was like a reflection inside the headset. Nope. Okay. No, that, that would make me feel like an idiot. I would not be sharing this story. <laughs> I, I had one of those happen where it was like, wow, there's this weird like... Like bright lens flary kind of thing, and everything gets washed out, and 
oh yeah, I'm looking away from the sun at two o'clock in the afternoon when it's streaming in through the window next to my VR play space. Yeah. Oh yeah, that would do it. Okay, please proceed. Yeah, it, it was a real issue. It wasn't. It wasn't just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely not be sharing this anecdote. Your your R is getting into your VR. Yeah. No, go ahead. So at this point, I've got a prefab. It's got. An empty object at the at the top. It's got a sphere in the middle, and then a start point for the laser as a child of that. So three objects in a hierarchy. All of the components are on the parent object, and it's got <clears throat> not a lot. Obviously, it's got a transform. It's got the controller class. It's got the laser beam class. It's got the tracking system, and three things to support the sensor framework. So not a lot. So I tried going through those disabling individual components and running and seeing if, if I could get it to happen. It was happening every time. I tried disable everything. Hey, it doesn't happen. Okay, something is different. Um, I made a, a third version of the turret. And this time, well. this time I started with just one component at a time. And as I got to adding the sensor stuff, I added the sensors, it ran, it... I still didn't happen. So as I was building up, looking for the issue, I'm not, I'm not triggering it. I'm not triggering it. I'm not triggering it. I add the center stuff and center toolkit. And then I go over to teleport next to it. And I see another bug that I had solved earlier, which is the mesh collider that I'm using for the field of view render on the sensor is on the same layer that the teleport stuff is. It's just using the default layer and I can't teleport next to where I need to be able to test it. So I put the game object back on the special layer that I created for it. And then I click the button to add all child, all ch children objects to the layer. And voila, I can now teleport over. And voila, I can see the issue. Okay, I just made the issue right there. And that's, what, that's how I figured it out. When I added the parent object with its collider and rigid body to a different layer, so that I could teleport through that collider. When I added the child objects to that layer, that's what's causing it. I, I have no idea why, but when I removed just the child objects, the game sphere and the laser point, and removed them from that layer and put that back on default, problem goes away. So the problem is fixed. I don't know why. This is like it's, that, <laughs> it's definitely that meme of like I, I fixed my code, but I don't know why. But it has something to do with putting these objects in that layer. It only and it, I should also clarify this was only <clears throat> ever happening in the VR headset. You would I could never see this in the viewport. Couldn't see it in the scene view. Couldn't see it in the in the game view. It was only in the VR headset, and uh, it, it was definitely having that parent object on the special layer and the the actual mesh objects rendered underneath that in that hierarchy on the default layer is what solved it. But if, that, if I put them back on that layer, I see this artifact again. So how do I report that as a bug? Do I report that as a bug? I don't even know how to Google that. Maybe it goes on an FAQ somewhere. Yeah. Just, huh, here's an interesting experience. Yeah. Well, if if I were you and you wanted to report it, then you make your simplest project mm -hmm. 
when you've already kind of made it, the simplest project one step before the whole thing breaks. Mm -hmm. And then give it, provide it to, for example, like the sensor maker people or whatever. Yeah. If nothing else, they're going to have better contacts at Unity for potentially getting a problem fixed there. Yeah, I'm still not even sure. I could test a little bit more. I'm not sure if this is a sensor issue or if it was just the fact that I was adding meshes to a physics layer. Some kind of combination between the sensor stuff and the physics layers and the teleportation stuff. I have no idea. Once I solved it, I just gave up and went to bed. But um, I guess I could try to figure it out. I probably won't, honestly. But it was, yeah, it was fun to figure stuff like that out. Um, as much as issues like that can be annoying and during crunch time when nothing is on fire, that's actually a lot of fun to try to just, okay, I'm going to tear this thing apart and build from the very ground up one thing at a time. I'm going to figure this out. Like, I love that type of work. I've done a lot of that in FileMaker, especially working with other people's systems. Like, okay, you say, what's happening now? Um, okay, that shouldn't be happening. Let me let me dive in and look at your script. Oh, oh yeah. This works? <laughs> this works at all? I've had a lot of those. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's my update. Um, there's one interesting, not sure topic, but something to mention, at least to get it on the record is HTC mm-hmm. is announcing something tomorrow. Um, they posted some tweet the other day, uh, something along the lines of New Year's resolution, where New Year's was in a fuzzy font and the resolution was crystal clear. And there it's CES. CES is starting tomorrow, so maybe they've got something to tell us, whether that's a new dev kit or a new device. I don't know. Should be interesting. Back on the topic of your play space. Okay. Uh, I, the, I had a lot of fun playing around in there, but probably the funniest part was there was a cube that had like no gravity associated with it. Mm-hmm. But it had some inertia, so it would kind of fly around for a while and then stop. And I wanted to play with it some more, but it was floating up in the air. So I grabbed another one of the cubes that did have gravity and was going to throw it at that thing. And so I put my hand over my head and went to swing it and hit your ceiling fan. Yeah. <laughs> it, because your ceilings are not where my ceilings are in my play space? Definitely not. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised I didn't break something somewhere. Yeah, you, well, earlier than that, you, you didn't hit, but you were within about a centimeter of just completely whacking through the light bulb. <laughs> which would have just shattered glass all over the office like you were actually i'm not sure how these shatter these are the the hue bulbs they may be a bit more solid but if it was a regular light bulb you would have eviscerated it but yeah there's uh you were a much taller person than i am i have to get a chair to touch my ceiling fan oh and you can just yeah. smack it Oh, particularly when I got a little stick in my hand. I just just reach up and mm-hmm. smack the thing. Lovely. Yeah, next, well, next time I move, 
uh, VR is going to weigh in pretty heavily into how I audit the place that I live in next. <laughs> That's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. And if you could, like us in your podcast player of choice or leave a review for us on iTunes. It would really help us to uh, spread the message around the show. Share us with your friends. And uh, come back next week. Thanks for listening.